What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness, in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. The world tells us that depression, by its nature, will kill our sex lives and destroy our relationships. And taking this as the gospel truth lets a lot of folks off the hook for having uncomfortable conversations while hanging folks coping with depression out to dry. The truth is, we are not alone. I love this excerpt from The Monster Under the Bed, Sex, Depression, and the Conversations We Aren't Having, a new book by Joellen Naughty a writer, speaker, researcher, and mental health advocate who writes about sex, mental health, and how none of us are broken on her award-winning site, The Redhead Bedhead, as well as for Glamour, The BBC, Bitch, Psych Central, and more. Joellen believes that too often we are ill-equipped to cope with depression in our relationships and that the myths that one, sex and desire should come naturally, and two, that sex isn't important enough to worry about in the midst of dealing with depression lead to so many avoidable problems. We need to understand that depression can make relationships different, she asserts, but it does not have to destroy them. I loved chatting with Joellen in the studio earlier this year, and I'm thrilled that her book is now available. If you appreciate the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and loved ones. Whether you live with depression or not, chances are someone, if not many people in your life do. And thanks to Joellen, I really believe the conversation you're about to hear can help. For some spicy inspiration of a pleasure variety, head to thepleasurechest.com. It'll prompt you to enter your email address to receive 20% off your first purchase. Sex toy sales have been on the upswing in light of the pandemic, and I think for good reason. You are worthy of pleasure, and I hope you're finding it while staying as safe and healthy as possible. Toward that end, find special bonus content on the Girl Boner Instagram page at Girl Boner Media, as well as Dr. Megan's, dr.megan.fleming. Now, I am so pleased to share my chat with writer, speaker, researcher, and mental health advocate, Joellen Naughty. Thank you so much for joining me, Joellen. Thank you so much for having me. I've admired your work for a very long time. Well, same. Mm, thank you. <laughs> that means a lot. I am very fascinated by um, your journey and the way that you share really openly about your your personal journey as well. And I think that really resonates with people. And then also your your focus on research, yeah. conducting your own research. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is such a beautiful way to talk about a topic such as mental health. And as you've you've shared before, sex and depression and mental health, these are all topics that there can be stigma around. Yeah. And there's a lot of preconceived notions. Like a lot of people just take it as fact that if you have depression, you don't have sex and your relationship is going to die. Yes. That's such a common misperception. Yeah. And when people don't feel they can talk about either of those... Right. That can happen. I mean, it's almost like a self-fulfilling thing where you feel like you're not supposed to have a great sex life. So then why try? Right. Which is sad. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people talked to me in um, like the surveys and the interviews I did about 
the uh, feeling that people gave them that, like, really, you're going to worry about sex at a time like this? Don't you have more important things to worry about? And Yeah. Like it's an ice cream cone or something. <laughs> like just a little add-on. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh, that's a fun, frivolous little thing. Exactly. Yeah, the word frivolity came up a lot. Mm, yeah. Which, you know, from your own journey, how impactful these types of um, intersections can be. Would you share a little bit about your own decision to to explore uh, sex and depression and, and mental health, um, kind of what was going on in your own life? Okay, so in 2011, I was uh, married, living in Boston, working as a personal trainer, and I woke up one day and said, this isn't my life. I'm in the wrong life. And so I got divorced, and I looked at what I wanted to do next. And one night, sitting around with a friend talking about boys we liked, I said to her, you know, I wish I could sit here and talk to you about sex all night, but I have to go figure out what to do with my life. <laughs> and the next morning, in the middle of a personal training session, I thought, oh, my God, I want to I wanna learn about sex, and I want to write what I learn, and I want to call my website The Redhead Bedhead. And that was it. I, the next day was the 4th of July. I scrapped my plans, stayed in, built a website, and we were off. <laughs> now, while all of this was going on, my father passed away. And so we got into the fall after I started the site, and it was the anniversary of that, and my divorce was being finalized, and my house was overrun with mice, and depression came back. I had battled depression badly in my 20s. And... I kind of thought, now that I had gone off in pursuit of this life I wanted and I was talking about sex and I was excited, that that part was over. Sex, you know, sex was my new life, depression was my old life, and there the twain shall meet. It's not how depression works. And so it came back, and I noticed I couldn't have an orgasm on the meds I was taking. I also noticed I was like a zombie, but the orgasm thing... You know, as a newly minted sex writer, I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to fix it. I, you know, I marched into my doctor's office and was like, this is unacceptable. And I wrote a piece about that 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 fall. And it was the first time I realized people who weren't my mom were reading my website. I got emails. I got private messages. And I got all this encouragement to keep talking about this, which I didn't do for like another year. I got kind of freaked out. But as I noticed this topic coming up more and more, I got some advice from a, an educator who said, you know what, this could be a book. And when I said, I am a sex writer with a theater degree, how do I write a book about this? They told me, you know, do some surveys, get some answers from people, find out what they want to talk about, what's going on for them. And that that's kind of how the whole thing snowballed into this book. That's so fascinating to me that the the seeds for the book were planted very early, which yeah. actually I relate to. A lot of people might be surprised to hear that from you. They mm -hmm. think, oh, now she's doing a book. And you're like, <laughs> this is, I mean, that yeah. was my, my journey too, in many ways was, I thought I'm a writer, I need to write a book. And then Life takes you in all different kinds of directions, yeah. and publishing is an interesting business, and you can't always choose the timing. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes the timing works out. You have this very large, thriving audience who's really um, receptive and, and engaged with you and has shared so much with you, yeah. which is awesome. Um, could you share what 
the most common thing you hear from people who are struggling in this department? Um, I hear a lot of people saying, like, their doctors don't believe them um, or, you know, they're told that that's not a side effect of that drug. That can't happen that way. Or they get told, like, of course you don't want to have sex. You have depression. And those aren't helpful answers. And so they end up feeling alone and like there's nothing they can do. Is that something that you heard? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's not a side effect of this medication was a, a big thing that I heard. And what really kind of woke me up to that was when I marched into that doctor's office and I said to him, I, I can't have an orgasm and this is unacceptable. And he said to me, you know, thank you. Nobody tells us these things. And so the big book I take out and I tell you, oh, this says that that's not a side effect. He's like, that comes about from doctors reporting what their patients experience. And if their patients aren't telling us or, you know, what I learned in the course of the research, the book, if the doctor is not taking that on board as an important thing to report, it doesn't make it into the big book that tells you what's a side effect. So it's probably more prevalent than anyone I, realizes. Yeah. 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 There's a John Hopkins survey that said that between 15 and 75 percent of people on antidepressant medications, depending on the medication, that's why Did it's Did you just say rate. 15 to 75? 15 to 75, right? Which is basically like, eh, it could be everybody. Maybe it's no one. Who knows? But um, depending on the medication, 15 to 75 percent of the people had sexual side effects. Wow. Yeah. And the doctors are often probably not terribly comfortable asking about it. Yep. And then if the patient is not comfortable bringing it up, yeah. or if they bring it up and the doctor does not respond in a way that seems that they are comfortable, or if they belittle the problems, yep. I imagine that just can compound these these issues and feeling more self-conscious and yeah. and fester shame, which is, which is really... Um, really devastating when you're already struggling. Some of the most surprising moments I had in this process, um, I've had a like a Patreon for like two years now. And one of the first supporters who was so gung-ho and into this book, I shared um, a, a preview of the book that mentioned talking to your doctors. And this guy had always like, yes, we need to talk about this. He jumped in and he said, I don't need my doctor poking around my sex life. And I thought, whoa, yeah, this is the big disconnect we have. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to talk to doctors if we're having medical things stand in the way of our sex lives. Yeah. Yeah. So I know depression and medications mm -hmm. affect people differently. Yeah. Certainly, it sounds like the most common potential side effect may be a, a drop in desire for sex. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other effects? So um, the polar opposite, which I didn't leave any space in my surveys for, I found out through the interviews, um, a whole bunch of people reported having more sex. Uh, some of it, it was a side effect of medication. Some people were looking for validation, looking for comfort. And some people, it was part of not feeling in control, right? Mm. So that's not talked about a lot, but it's a thing. Um, the really the big ones we hear about a lot are um, what I call the arousal ones. So difficulty with lubrication, um, difficulty with an erection, uh, the orgasm ones, which are anorgasmia, inability to orgasm, or uh, delayed orgasm, or it takes a long time, or my personal favorite, strange orgasm. Yeah, um, <laughs> I never heard of Clinical this term. I did this, right? <laughs> There's like not anything acknowledging it, but it came up over and over again in the survey and the interviews. One of the guys described it as like 
when you're driving a standard transmission and it doesn't quite go into gear right. And like, you know, you're driving and you know, like you're in the gear, but it's just not quite right. Ah, Unsatisfying was the other term people used for the orgasms. Interesting. So there was like a disconnect in being able to fully be present in it. Yeah. Somebody said she felt it in her head, but not her body. Or maybe it might have been the other way around. I Those have to are look really at my own insightful book. But yeah. Responses though. Yeah. I mean, every doctor should should read your book to get that, that information because what a powerful way to because when you read a list of side effects or you hear a list of side effects, mm-hmm. sexual side effects, what does that even, even mean to those people? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to know that you're not the only person having this this quote unquote like strange orgasm. Like that's something that may happen. Yeah. The other thing that we talked about in the book that um, I think doesn't get enough kind of airplay is sexual impulses, but no desire to act on them. So it gets lumped in with like low libido, but it's really depression can make everything feel way harder, right? It's like I always say when I'm depressed, brushing my teeth is harder than college. So that feeling of like, oh, sex could be nice, but I don't want to take off my pants and I have to like make the bed and then... And it just feels like another demand and too much. And so that's a big piece of the puzzle, too. And when we lump that in with low libido, it just goes along with, like, people saying, well, I have depression, so I don't have sex. Ah, yeah. And it's so fascinating how we as a society tend to react to those happenings because of the ways that we are taught what sex should look like, should feel like. Um, mm-hmm. I've jokingly called it like the Grey's effect because I love Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> yes. And certainly if a whole sex scene with part of the show would be like most of the show, I get it. But like there's like a 20 second sex scene where two people experience orgasm in perfect synchronicity. <laughs> yep. And so if we think that that's supposed to happen, but it's not feeling like that. Yeah. I imagine it could kind of put a a wall up and maybe we might not try to cultivate pleasure. As a society, we love the idea of things coming naturally, right? And so especially with sex, people get this thing that like, well, if I'm with a good partner who I care about and we have the chemistry, it'll all just come naturally. And even under the best circumstances where nobody has depression and everybody's physically happy and healthy, we should be talking about our sex and people get this image from the media that no electric sex just like happens and it's fabulous and if it's not fabulous what are you doing wrong completely yeah would you speak to the myth of sexual desire as as a drive yeah so my book is uh at least one portion of it is largely informed by emily nagoski's um come as you are and so we talk a lot about sex is, is not a drive. It's not an inherent need we have like eating um, or sleep or you know thirst. We like to talk about it like that it is. And I think for a long time that's been a step in kind of shutting down sex negative rhetoric like, oh, this is a natural thing that we all need. What's more true is that, you know, we're complicated and there could be different things impacting your desire or your interest. Or, and we need to acknowledge that because when we expect it to be a natural drive, when it's not there, we just think we're broken and wrong and something's wrong with us. Mm, yeah. yeah, which is really huge. And especially in the context of mental health challenges, mm. because so many people 
find sex to be healing and helpful mm-hmm. once they engage in it. But if they don't take the steps to prioritize it in a way that they can yeah. because they think they are broken. Yeah, there's um, the idea of the sexual accelerator and sexual break, right, that we have those in our minds. And some people, you know, one is more sensitive than the other. And, you know, my depression, because I'm really fortunate and I really go big when I do things, comes with raging anxiety, too. And so I always feel like that that sexual break is like getting pressed by a million different issues all at once. And it's all just stress. And, you know, I have to take a step back and look at that and see that that's impacting my desire and talk to my partner about how that's what's going on. So it sounds like when you started really speaking out about all these issues, you were very early in your own self-discovery around it. What do you remember learning early on? What were some of the first um, helpful messages you started to embrace or ideas you challenged that ended up helping you experience more pleasure? Um. So what I noticed early on was that when people talked about this topic and um, it started getting more attention around 2014, right, when I was like just doing the surveys because of all things, Robin Williams passed away and Mm. people started writing about depression. I started seeing more things addressing sex and depression. And so many of them told people, you know what, just do it. Just have sex because you'll find you want to have sex and, and that'll, you know, just get through that barrier. Just do it. And that made me, like, livid. <laughs> and so that was kind of one of the earliest things I looked at and said, oh, we we can't be telling people this. This is not responsible. This is not Nike. Yeah. And um, that led me down a whole trail that eventually led to what is, I would say, like, one of the big main points of my book, which is that depression doesn't ruin our relationships and our sex lives. Resentment does. We don't know how to cope with mental illness entering our relationships. It's not a thing we're prepared for. And so we're not good at it. And then we end up resenting each other. And then, of course, we don't want to have sex anymore. What an important point. Resentment has, I feel like my friends and family are just kind of done with me and my resentment talk, but it's been at the core of my work for the last two years. Yeah, and also I think could be such a freeing message for people to learn about because if you are the person who has depression or any other mental illness or mental health issue and you think that that is what is causing all the problems, all the onus feels like it's on you. It shouldn't be, but it feels like it's on you. And to say it's actually how we are maneuvering around this and with this. What do you say to somebody when they come to you? And because I'm sure you hear so many stories and real life experiences. And they say, you know, my relationship is is like this. My depression is breaking my relationship um, my or ruining our sex life. Yeah. Where do you go with that? So something I talk about a lot and I tell people about a lot and gets a lot of enthusiastic nodding is um, this relationship dynamic I call broken and lucky. That like those of us with mental illnesses, chronic illnesses, end up feeling like we are broken, something is wrong with us, and we are so lucky that someone would want to be with us in spite of that. And not only is that a recipe for raging resentment, because when one of you is broken, then the other one is the de facto leader. They are right all the time that, you know, you're just going to build up all of that resentment. It also, like, it screws with your consent dynamic. 
Because can you ever really say yes or no if you feel like you owe them so much because you're so lucky they're there or mm. you feel like, you know, you don't want to press that luck because when, when the luck runs out, right? So there are so many unhealthy ways that can go and so many of us fall directly into that dynamic. Yeah. Wow. And also I imagine it can impact your your standards, like the the value you have for yourself, will then just oh, I'll, this person's interested in me. Oh wow, I'm so lucky. Mm-hmm. When that person might be really not a good fit for you, or worse, harmful. One of the things I um, over the last couple of years uh, started telling some friends when they talked about dating, and this is like for everybody in general, but it's applicable here, is that a lot of folks, especially women act like when we date, we are auditioning to see if someone else will accept us. And we don't give enough credit to the fact that we're trying to see if we have any interest in spending time with them, too. (laughs) I'm so feeling that, right? (laughs) Like, I'm looking back at my life and going, oh, wow. You just described so many pages of many people's diaries. Oh, yeah, that was my 20s. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so when we start to look at it like that, that, you know, and depression doesn't change that. Illness doesn't change that. You're still auditioning people to see if you want them to be part of your life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And when you first said lucky, I almost thought you might go into, like, and I don't know if this is even, like, a inappropriate thing to, to say in this context, but, like, that you are navigating mental health issues can be a gift, is that something okay. that is that a good message or is that a little bit like a I mean, I would never say to someone, oh, you have depression. Well, don't <laughs> worry. Here's the bright side. Yeah. You know, I there's a lot of um, mental health issues in my family and I've struggled myself. And I I don't think that's helpful. But I do think that I know that people I know who go through mental health challenges tend to have such enormous hearts and, and gifts that are so profound. Um, I don't know if I'm making any sense. You You absolutely are. Um, So um, I would separate that from the the broken and lucky type of issue we were talking before. And I look at it um, because, you know, I've had my share of getting angry at people who are like, well, look how much character you'll build or, you know, something amazing will come of this. But, you know, I've, I've had years and years of depression. I've had multiple uh, spinal injuries that have kept me off my feet for a year at a time. I feel like all of that has helped me cultivate um, empathy, right? Um, The idea that you never know what someone else is going through. Mm. The idea that you're telling yourself a story about what other people are saying. Go read Brene Brown, everybody. (laughs) And watch her special. Exactly. Best thing I've ever watched on TV. And I've watched that ripple out from me, right? My partner is more empathetic. My family just had this big, like, sit-down summit over stuff that they, like— refuse to talk about for years because they're now all looking around and seeing, you know, what other people might be experiencing. And I think that is the gift that depression has given me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's an enormous one. Empathy is so powerful and and that it is sprinkling through your community and people are learning from it, I think is is a huge testament to also how you have chosen to to go through all of this and to, um, and then to help people with what you're learning as well. 
What are some of the myths that uh, get to you? I I know that you're also very passionate about myth debunking. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> about who who gets to be sexual? Ah, yes. Um, so basically, I feel like we as a society say that you know, slender, heterosexual, typically white, conventionally attractive people who are mentally and physically healthy, they get to be sexual. And and I don't know if I know anybody who literally checks all of those boxes, <laughs> but those are the boxes. Barbie we, and Ken. Right? And um, that leaves out, you know, most of the world. So it's been, it's been uh, encouraging over the last couple of years to see so much talk about um, sex and disability because – we live in a world that says, like, if you have any kind of physical, mental health issue, you're just out of the sexy pool. And it's just not true. It might look like a different pool, but, yeah, you're still there. Yeah, you're still there to be recognized as as valuable and valid and just as sexually worthy mm-hmm. <laughs> as yeah. anybody. Yeah. As anybody. Absolutely. There are so many paths to uh, having a happy and healthy sex life, yeah. and we can en- enjoy wonderful sex during some really dark times, which yeah. I think can be really cathartic. Yeah. Uh, how often do you hear from people that they are having or getting to a place where they can enjoy really maybe even the best sex while they're going through some of these challenges? I have heard some of that. I will say I am largely someone people reach out to when stuff is not going well. <laughs> of course. Sure. So, um, and I think that is, you know, the the search for validation and for other people who feel this way. Um, but a thing that came up in the, the interviews specifically was the the couples where they had come to, you know, they talked about everything. They understood the partner who didn't have depression, learned about it. They worked together. Those were the people that I would hear, you know, we have a sex life. It is very satisfying. And, you know, it might not look like what we had before, but, you know, we're happy. And I think that that is no coincidence, Mm -hmm. right? The people who are communicating, who feel seen and heard, who feel validated, they, you know, still want to have sex with their partners. Yes. Yeah. And the communication piece is not only so huge, but also so challenging for so many people. And yeah. as you said, when you're struggling with a bout of depression or chronic depression, when brushing your teeth is challenging, <laughs> yeah. bringing up a topic that feels brings up so many concerns, you know, what we hear from people, the things like... Um, I'm afraid that they will feel rejected or, you know, if they find out that my orgasms aren't what they used to be or or, you know, just adding to their own um, shame that the the negative things they've learned and the positive things they haven't learned. All those things can come up. What are some of the steps that someone in that place can can take to have like the first conversation? Because I feel like that's probably the the most intimidating, at least. The first, so my my big thing for partners is get on each other's team, right? You should be on the same team. We tend to set it up like it's you know depressed partner and their depression on one team and the other partner against them, and if they all get on the same team, it just makes all of the next steps so much easier. And for me, that involves you know I say you know learn a new language, right? Um, I taught my partner about something called spoon theory. Um, 
which was written by a woman with uh, chronic illness, and it was explaining the physical and mental capacity we have to get through any day. And that has worked for my partner and I. I send people to play a game called Depression Quest. It's an online video game, and you basically role play inside the life of someone with depression. And so it gets everybody on the same page. So you're not having that thing where one of you is explaining their depression and the other's like, yeah, but I read Depression's Fake. You know, you you get together and that's like step one. Ah. Yeah. Is that game sounds incredible. It's and amazing. They should have one for every <laughs> Also I would advise people not play it when they are in depressive episodes. I did oh, that once good. and it was like super depression. It was yeah. It, it was not good. Oh wow. So it's really good for people who are trying to understand what it's like. Yeah. Yeah, which is really, really important because you just mentioned one huge myth, which is it's not a thing. I have ADHD and I I can't even tell you. I mean, even even talking to it comes up for me so often in my own head and I don't know if I'm telling the story or if it's really there, you know, where right, it's like yeah. I am very comfortable talking about the things that I, you know, struggle with. Um, but I also know that a lot of people, they'll say, oh, that's not a diagnosis in Europe or have you tried this herb mm-hmm. or how about yoga? Or <laughs> And when yes. you absorb those messages, yeah. it can be detrimental. I mean, to the point of like n- maybe stepping away from treatment that's saving your life. And in the world that's like on social media as much as our world is, I feel like you kind of never know where that messaging is going to come from. Every time there's, um, well, another mass shooting, I hide from social media for a bit because it got too painful to watch people I know and love be like, well, clearly it was a mentally ill person, that mentally ill people and the shooting, right? Um, and so I think our partners really need to be our safe space from that. And I think without that, something I talk about a couple of times in the book um, that I feel like sounds a little harsh and a little tough love is not everybody can be in a relationship that contains depression. And really, before you set out, you need to ask yourself the question, see, like, can you be on board for that? And if not, get out because you have such a capacity to do more harm to your partner. Mm. Yeah. That's really powerful. Do you recommend, um, or again, this is different for everyone, I'm sure, but maybe in your own experience, bringing up depression pretty early on when you're dating someone? Uh, So I do it because I tend to chronically overshare. (laughs) (laughs) I love, love, love that about you, by the way. Also, conveniently, I've built it into my my brand identity, (laughs) so it just comes with me. It all works, yeah. Um, I I really wish this was... uh, not this like hot button issue, right? I feel like if you go on a date with somebody and you tell them, you know, by the way, I have asthma, they say, okay, cool, and go back to their appetizer. But if you say, I I suffer from depression, people like expect you to start crying or think they're going to have to stage an intervention from, you know, your suicide attempt or something. And I would love to see us move past that point. Uh, Because I do hear from people who are like, I'm like four dates in with this guy. I don't want to ruin it. But I, you know, have chronic depression. Yeah. 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 It's so true. And I love that example because we don't have that same stigma around medication either. Yeah. You know, if if you have diabetes and you take (laughs) insulin, people would be like, don't miss your insulin. Like, you don't have your insulin today. But if you said, oh, I missed my antipsychotic or I missed my antidepressant or, you know, whatever it is, um, people just have such a different view 
and I would I would love to see that change as well. Could we talk about medications for a moment? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that's such an important topic that is so misunderstood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I catch a lot of grief. Um, the thing people will most likely write to me about, like kind of annoyed, is, you know, why are you so pro-medication? There are natural ways to treat it. And I'm not pro-medication. I'm pro-everybody having the treatment that they need, yes. like whatever works best for them. And medication is a huge part of the sex and depression conversation because of sexual side effects. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. And it's interesting that people perceive if you aren't focused only on natural remedies mm-hmm. and lifestyle, then you must be pro-medication and pro-big pharma. And I think yeah. we could talk about the problems with big pharma yeah. and be very accepting of medications and respecting people's, um, you know, what they need to do for themselves. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and I don't think, I personally don't think that if you're, if you take medication that you need and it and it's part of your care plan, it's never the only thing. Right. You know, but people think that you're somehow medicating instead. Yeah. <laughs> but and that it's super that. easy. That like once you <laughs> right. get a medication, it's super easy. Fixed. And we don't talk about, you know, the four shots at like different medications that you took before you got to this one and, you know, the effect on your body and the effect on your mind. And it just, it's like they think it's like a happy pill. Right. And uh, no, it's a question I get a lot is like, in your book, do you talk about natural treatment methods? And I think a thing to be aware of is I don't talk about any treatment methods because I'm not a doctor. (laughs) Right. That's not the point. Yeah. 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 It's it's so big and it is so heated. Um, I think one thing a lot of people don't understand, something I've seen, is if if they had a, a negative experience with a medication, it's very easy to then jump to medications are bad. Mm-hmm. I've seen that a lot. And I understand and have empathy for people who – I'll use myself an example because I can talk about me publicly. So I – I was misdiagnosed um, with multiple things before ADHD, and antidepressants made my symptoms worse. Mm -hmm. And and I was a teenager the first time uh, I was prescribed. I think it was Prozac, and and so I just thought, oh, medications don't work for me. Like that's what you think when you're a kid, and you're like, well, I tried that. Um, And years later, once I was properly diagnosed and found, thankfully, a medication that is so helpful to me. It was, it erased any semblance of doubt. When you finally do find something that helps you, it's incredible how life-changing that is, and not in a happy pill way, but in a way of, I can be okay. Like, I can be a human. I can feel, not that I wasn't human, but you just feel so, when you're struggling that much, and you finally find something that is addressing the thing that is needing help, just like the blood sugar is off. Yeah. Have you had those experiences? Like the you mentioned, have, sometimes you have to go through many medications to yeah. find the right one. Um, so unfortunately, I feel like I have really yet to have that moment where a medication like really hits. Um, the last couple of years have been kind of brutal and awful because I've just been on the wrong medications. Mm. I spent a brief period misdiagnosed by a doctor who had never heard of anxiety and depression coexisting, so declared that I had bipolar disorder and treated it as such, but that was not the appropriate treatment plan. So now, um, 
I've gone back to the medication I was taking for the time in my life when I felt the best. Yeah. And we're going to see how that goes. Uh, what I have had, I mentioned earlier I had uh, back injuries. And both the best and the worst medication experiences of my life came through that. Um, once I had to go to an urgent care and I was in so much pain and they gave me, of all things, like a steroid drug of some sort. You're not It's like something you shouldn't take more than a week worth of and like... I don't know why I felt incredible. I woke up one day and said, this is how people feel and went about my work and didn't. Yeah, it was wild. And I knew it was only going to last a week. But it kind of opened my eyes to the fact that, like, there is some path to, you know, a wow. normal or happier It was addressing make. something that needed it to be addressed. Yeah. And on the flip side, I was once prescribed a muscle relaxant and I became suicidal within 24 hours. Oh, my goodness. And so for me, what this taught me is like every medication interacts on all of us differently. So, you know, when I tell the muscle relaxant story, everybody's like, I need to know what it is. And it's such an uncommon reaction that it feels wrong to scare people away from something that might relieve their pain. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it can get really complicated. And knowing what the potential side effects are so key to being able to care for yourself because... When something makes you feel suicidal, that is, wow. Yeah. Were you able to reach out for support? Was it something you were like, okay, I know this is from the medication? I didn't know. Um, I, I was staying with my partner, and I, like, I was a mess, and he was taking care of me. And then we happened to fall asleep really early on Saturday night, and so I didn't take the medication that night. And the next day, I kind of noticed I was feeling a bit better, but my head was still kind of there. So to be really honest, I want to warn everybody, I'm going to mention, like, suicide stuff right now. Um, I looked up the medication to see if it was something I could use in the process of committing suicide. And um, and there, the, the first article that came up was this uh, medication can cause suicidal ideation in vulnerable populations. And it told the story of a man who was on it for a couple of days and... Yeah, and his uh, life ended, and that like that was the moment it clicked for me, and I knew what was going on because before that, it just felt like the most natural thought in the world. Like I was stressed out, and I just went, "Oh, maybe I'm done. Maybe that's it." Because no one spoke to you about no, that as a possibility, yeah. and the doctors and the pharmacists, when I told them, none of them had heard of it as a possibility. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And in my research, a huge percentage of people who experienced, for example, sexual side effects said that they had had no preparation for that. They had had no warning. Nobody told them it could happen. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I see the parallel there hugely. Yeah. Because, again, you might not know why. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, especially when you're coping with depression, that tends to sit there in our minds and tell us we're terrible and we suck. And if you don't know that a medication is causing this to happen for you, you just look at it as more evidence that you're terrible and the worst and broken. And mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. As I understand it, for at least some people, sexual side effects can be temporary. Is that right? Like you might start a medication, experience maybe vaginal dryness or low desire or something. But if the medication's helping you, sometimes it's a matter of time. Is that something you've heard? I've found that with like a lot of side effects just in general. Like when you start something, sometimes you have the side effects for a little bit. And sometimes it can be a question of um, tweaking dose or, you know, 
giving it some time. I get hesitant to tell people too much to give things time because I know I would listen to that and like it'd be like nine months later. I still because I was like, I'm supposed to give it time. But yeah. And in addition to that, I have dealt with a lot of people who found a medication that worked and were so happy it worked that they were willing to take on the sexual side effects. Right. Um, Which is a completely valid choice. And I'm not here to tell you you have to have all the depression orgasms. Um, But it's what set me about figuring out strategies for working around some of the side effects so that you could still have some pleasure while you're on the med that works. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense because if a medication is that helpful to you in that, you know, if you're like, I can make it through a day now. Yeah. Then sex may not be the thing. It might be the give and take that you see. Like you might perceive that as a, okay. Um, it's either something or it's something that you're like, I'm willing to work around that in another way, yeah. which I know you talk about quite a bit. I do. Yeah. And it's mm, I want people to understand that it's a valid choice to choose to stay on something if it's compromising your uh, sexual function. But also depression is not some kind of like Faustian bargain where you trade away your sex life for a shot at happiness. Right. There are ways we can work around all that. Yeah. Could you yeah. give a few examples that might work for some people? Um, so I realized a sexual side effect I didn't mention earlier is something called genital numbness. And it's not numbness in that like pins and needles way we think. It's more just like, (laughs) I once said it it was like bubble wrap is over your genitals, right? Like things that usually work, don't quite register. You're just not, you know, feeling that. So in terms of that and anorgasmia and delayed orgasm, I tend to recommend that every household where someone has depression has a high powered wand vibrator in it. Because, like, it sounds so silly, but they're so powerful. And the heads of them tend to be so big that it can kind of start stimulating parts you hadn't thought you needed to stimulate. Or it can give that vibration to a huge, large area. And it just, for a lot of people, is a lot more than they're used to. And it can help get around that numbness or that, you know, um, that delayed orgasm, which can be satisfying for people. Yeah. Um, Additionally... For uh, penis stimulation, I've found a couple of things that actually can help stimulate someone to orgasm without an erection. So one of them is uh, The Pulse by a company called Hot Octopus, and it uses, like, oscillation, and it's it's very cool. And one of kind of their big selling points is that it does not require an erection to use. Additionally, going back to my big giant wand fixation, there's an attachment you can put on a giant wand that, like, it just looks like a tube. Um, I think Hummingbird, the Hummingbird attachment is a name it goes by frequently. And uh, people in my research reported that they were able to have great orgasms without an erection with that attachment. And I just Uh, think that's fun stuff that we never think of. Yeah. 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 Imagine if you talk to your doctor and they could recommend some of these things or yeah. or send them to your book, which you I know, think could be a great way to, if they aren't comfortable talking, especially, yeah. or even if they are. Well, and a big thing, you know, with the, the changes in lubrication so many people experience, I just feel like in general, doctors need a better relationship with lube. And um, that would help so many people because, again, we think of lube as some kind of unnatural interloper into our sex lives and we don't want to use it and I don't need that. But 
I don't care if you actually need it or not. It just makes everything better. Oh, my God. <laughs> I keep like a buffet of five lubes <laughs> on my nightstand. I love that visual so much. <laughs> and it's, it's because, you know, dry things touching genitals does not feel great, right? So I, I keep a water-based, a silicone, an oil-based, a hybrid, and a flavored lube all on my nightstand at mm. all times because that's just a great path to things feeling better whether your lubrication is compromised or not. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that uh, masturbation is a a good option for a lot of people who might be either – Let's say they are in a relationship or have a partner or partners, but they have been feeling self-conscious about these changes Mm -hmm. that maybe having that buffet of lube and having the wand and and playing and having fun and learning your body again. Is that is that something that comes up? Yes, I I, uh, because I know how my own brain works. I try and be really careful with people because, you know, my my impulse is to say, yes, you should go masturbate, go do it. And then it's an assignment and people hate me. But. I think especially if you're someone for whom masturbation was already something you enjoyed, you know, check yeah. in with that. And if yeah. you're somebody for whom it's new and you're now trying to navigate not only communicating with a partner about like base level sex stuff, but this added layer, it's great because it can give you language. It can it can let you say like, OK, I've realized this feels good right here, as opposed to before when a lot of us are just like, I don't know, I'm sure it'll be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for pointing that out. That's huge. Yeah. That permission to if this sounds fun, great. If it sounds appealing or, you know, yeah. interesting, great. And if not, that's OK. Too. One of the I, I had a career changing letter that was sent to me in 2015 where somebody said, I don't like masturbation. If I buy this, will I like it more? And I wrote back to her and I said, my question for you is, uh, do you want to masturbate? Because it doesn't sound like you do. And I feel like you need to know that that's okay. And she wrote back and said, nobody's ever said that to me before. Everybody just told me I was too shy or I should try different things. And she was like, yeah, I think I just like sex with my husband. And that's okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's great. So great that she found you. (laughs) Would you share more about your book? Obviously, a lot of this, um, these these kinds of topics are in it in um, plentifully. Yes. Um, Tell us a little bit about what you hope people get from it, the format, um, what the experience will be like using it. So this book originally started out as just a way for me to say to people, see, other people are experiencing this, and then they could feel better and move on. Over time, it evolved into um, almost like a guidebook. So I say the first half identifies the monster under the bed, right? It tells us what's going on for people. Lots of survey results there. The second half is more um, like applicable solutions, right? Things you can try, uh, products, books, um, really even a little like just how to navigate the rest of the world stuff so that we can have like a step-by-step and to me at least – I feel, because the book is, you know, part one and part two, I feel if you're not interested in the history of how all this happened, you can actually jump into part two and get some answers. And that's kind of my favorite thing about the book. Yeah. Awesome. That's so great. So people will be able to purchase it anywhere. Books are sold pretty much. Um, But you also have a great direct web link. I do. Yes. So um, right now, the buying information for the different places the book is available is on my site at redheadbedhead forward slash monster. And uh, right now there's six or seven places you can buy it. They're just kind of, you know, my favorite ones that I picked. 
One of them, though, I just found this out yesterday, and I'm so excited. I thought my book was available in North America, period. Uh, It is available through a site called Book Depository that ships free to over 160 countries. Wow. Yeah. So if you're listening on the other side of the world... Book Depository has my book for you. That's really exciting. Yeah. And if people want to learn more about you, is your main red, I keep saying red bed, head bed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's just my brain jumping. Redhead, bedhead. Dot com. Dot com. Yep. And they can find your blog and all kinds of wonderful things. Yeah. You can find um, everything I've ever done on the topic of sex and depression is together. And, you know, on the other side of the coin, my list of the best sex shops in North America. Also there. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff happening at the site. A one-stop shop. I love it. Would you leave us with one piece of advice for anyone who might be struggling in the area of sex and depression? Don't be afraid to make conscious decisions when it comes to sex, right? A lot of us say, I have depression, so sex goes away. And on the other side, we have that just do it thing I don't like. I like checking in, seeing how you feel about sex today. And, you know, do you want it, but it sounds like a lot of work? Do you not want it at all? Whatever it is, identify it. And then you have something you can talk to your partner about and you get to stay on the same page. Mm, That's beautiful. Thank you so much for being here today and for the work you do, I think it is so vital. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Find a link to Joellen's site where you can get all the details about her new book and place an order. Uh, The book, again, is called The Monster Under the Bed, Sex, Depression, and the Conversations We Aren't Having. The link is in the show notes. I recently polled listeners who subscribe to my email list about topics folks would like support around and received this response from someone we will call Tess. I was recently diagnosed with major depression and am terrified that my medication will ruin my sex life. I literally have not been able to orgasm since starting it. The medication is really starting to help otherwise, but it feels sort of like a catch-22, and I'm now so bummed and basically grieving orgasms. Ah, Tess, I felt that. I'm so glad you're getting the care and support that you need. That is wonderful. And I can really imagine how challenging it must be to truly grieve that pleasure. You worded that so well. Orgasms can be hugely impactful for well-being, and you for sure deserve them. Here is what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. Tessa, great question that I'm looking forward to answering. And I'm also going to tie it into the fact that we are all now experiencing sort of an unprecedented time being isolated at home and in fear of sort of exposure to the COVID-19. And so that too can contribute to feelings of depression or anxiety and how we can sort of manage those feelings in in these challenging times. So coming back to your question, I can really feel the fact that, you know, it the sense of it's a catch-22, as if in this moment you have to choose between your mood and well-being versus having an orgasm. And I can say that um, you don't have to make that choice, but that certainly we do know certain antidepressants, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, um, predominantly being ones that can delay orgasm. Um, And so, but you mentioned you've only recently been diagnosed, and I'm so glad to hear you're already 
experiencing improvement in your mood, but that I don't know which medication you're on because certain SSRIs have more significant sexual side effects than others, and that it's a dose-related side effect. So perhaps you were started on a higher dose that maybe now that your mood is stabilized, you might be able to decrease, as well as talking to your prescribing doctor about the potential role of adding Wellbutrin which is also an antidepressant, but it um, doesn't have, it's not an SSRI. And in fact, it's known to have sort of sex positive um, effects on our arousal response. So on the medical side, those are things that you can try from a prescribing perspective, as well as the role of a drug holiday. Uh, Speak to your doctor about, if you're like most couples, your sex is probably happening on the weekend. So perhaps not taking a dose on Friday or Saturday or a lower dose so that if there's less drug in the system, again, it might raise your ability to orgasm and increase sensation. The other piece to recognize, again, is arousal both mental and physical. So definitely want you to be thinking about all the ways that you can be increasing um, your psychological arousal. And by that, I mean, uh, what are your turn-ons? You know, I always talk about keeping your sexy pilot light on. So not only on, but you want to turn it up. And so whether that's reading romantic stories or uh, erotic videos or, um, you know, sharing fantasy and exploring your fantasy, there's so many ways to spend time increasing your mental turn-on and turn yourself on even before your partner gets home, um, as well as the role of increasing physical stimulation. So that might be everything from adding a vibrator or experimenting more with nipple play or anal play. But the whole idea is the taking the time to build your arousal because I find that so many women cut off their arousal by rushing toward penetration. Um, And so in order to have more sensation and to build to a point or tipping point of orgasm, it's really building your arousal response. So that is what I would suggest right there for yourself. Um, and as always want to hear how it goes, but I also want to say that, um, it's important that everybody listening recognizes that this is such a challenging time because we all are in a sense confined to our homes and many have had significant losses whether it's in terms of job or finances and we're all experiencing sort of the stress of the unknown and that really leads to our our nervous systems being on high alert sort of that fight flight uh, and sometimes freeze right and and that really means that cortisol is being dumped into our nervous systems, which is sort of the stress hormone. So now more than ever, um, we need to prioritize our practices of both relaxation and pleasure. Because just like yawning teaches the body that it's not that's not in danger, right? Because you can't be sleepy and on high alert at the same time. These practices equally are conditioning and teaching your nervous system that it doesn't need to be on high alert. Not to mention, I think so many of us, um, whether it's because we're confined, um, we don't have as much space, we have more responsibilities, you know, juggling work and or maybe kids being at home and helping them with their studies, uh, that again, we often are probably feeling more like we're running on empty. And so that is why it's so important that we really up the importance and the commitment to sort of pleasure practices because it's really going to teach your nervous system that you're safe. Um, And it's going to, again, fill up your tank because so many of us are sort of running on empty. So I really want to encourage us all in these challenging times that we sort of, I'm going to give you three tips um, and I'm looking forward to sharing more in the coming weeks because I know that we're all going to be sort of in isolation for some period of time. 
So the first one I want to say is the importance of limiting your exposure to the news. It really is changing daily, certainly sometimes even hourly. And I definitely have a lot of clients that are having much more anxiety um, and preoccupied thoughts because they're consistently watching the news. So know yourself, you are your own expert, but I highly suggest checking maybe once, max maybe twice a day so that the rest of your day is focused on... um, the things that you want to get done in the day, but also, as I'm saying, the commitment and prioritization to pleasure. So a second tip that I want to say is make a list of all the things that you're grateful for in this unexpected time that's been given to you. You have certainly more time with loved ones, even if it's connecting on uh, FaceTime or Zoom. I have, you know, lots of clients doing sort of virtual happy hours. There's so many ways to stay connected. And that is so important that in this time that we're not in isolation, um, as well as time to finish unfinished projects and importantly, to explore new things that turn us on. So, you know, this is a huge opportunity to explore those turn-ons. And the third thing I want to say is, again, the commitment to prioritizing pleasure. At least one or two things a day that you get to savor, um, maybe like the chocolate or a glass of Cabernet or just up-leveling the experience, like taking that hot bath and sort of adding sort of the Epsom salts for relaxation as well as, say, maybe lavender and some aromatherapy just really pampering yourself and taking this time that we have been given. I want you to know that we are all in this together and we are going to continue to support one another. And as I said, I will be certainly sharing the weeks to come a lot more tips. So stay happy, healthy, safe, and absolutely take this time to prioritize your own pleasure and explore your turn-ons. Thanks so much, Dr. Megan. Tess, we are sending you and everyone navigating mental health challenges right now, all our very best. If you have been struggling with mental health or substance issues, please call SAMHSA's National Helpline. It's free, confidential, 24-7 support, 1-800-662-HELP. That's 662-4357. If you could benefit from crisis counseling in the midst of the pandemic, call their disaster distress helpline, 800 985-5990. For some lighthearted humor, quotes, and inspiration online, remember to find me and Dr. Megan on Instagram. And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, ratings and reviews are so appreciated. Thank you so much for listening. Take best care and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast brand movement and book series at girlboner.org, and more about Period at periodnetwork.com. 